As we mentioned, we are celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning, and we thought we might uh, consider this passage to help us reflect all the more on the Lord's grace through the gift of His Son. These are precious words, beginning in verse 3 of 1 Peter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We'll stop there. Just uh, three things this morning uh, under the title that Jesus is our living hope. You know, that phrase comes directly out of this passage, verse 3. We'll get to that momentarily. Let me mention from the outset that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together today, we, we do so in remembrance of Christ. The reality is that none of us fully understand Christ. Think of it. How could man fully understand God? By definition, a God must be beyond our understanding. So it's not unusual, it's not illogical, and it's certainly not surprising that somehow God is wiser, bigger, uh, more diverse, more complex than we could ever understand. And yet, God has ordained that he would give us this Bible, this revelation of himself. The reason we know about God is because he has told us about God. That's the reason we know. And what God has said about God is therefore true. And what man says about God may or may not be true. That's like if I tell you something about me, that's true. If my wife tells you something about me, it's also true. No, it could not. It might be a little bit off. might not have full understanding because, after all, she's not me. Though she's pretty close. Thanks be to God. So I want you to see these three things very briefly because they help us as we think about Jesus this morning. I want you to know, first of all, in verse 3, that salvation is the loving work of God. It's the loving work of God. Read again verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again caused us to be born again. So salvation is the loving work of God. Uh, he uses the word mercy. The word mercy just means compassion, means pity. It means to be gracious. It implies that someone is in trouble or is someone is in deficit to you. Understand this about mercy. You can't give mercy in a peer context, person-to-person -person context, where the circumstances are equal on either side. Mercy only can go downward. So from a position of authority or a position of superiority or a position of, of truth over against those who are in error. Uh, mercy is, is given, in, 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 if you will, in the avenue of forgiveness, the arena of forgiveness, because someone has offended uh, you and, and they come and they ask for forgiveness. They are in your deficit, 
so to speak. And you, you extend forgiveness as a genuine act of mercy. And mercy must go downward, so to speak, in this, if you will, this taxonomy of who's actually the, the offended party. In this case, mercy flows downward from God to man. The reason for that, of course, is that man has a fundamental problem. It's called man. That's right. We are our worst enemies. I want you to note that this giving of mercy, extending of mercy, uh, is the nature of God, first of all. It's the nature of God. It's the way God is. If you cut me, I'm going to bleed blood. But if you cut God, which obviously is a metaphorical statement, but if you cut God, he's going to bleed mercy. We know this because God has identified himself. In Exodus 34, in verse 6, as regards Moses, you'll recall that Moses has gone back up on the mountain for the second set of Ten Commandment tablets. And God appears to him and introduces himself to Moses with this verse, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. In other words, God establishes a relationship with Moses and through Moses to his people in the Old Testament on the basis of God and his mercy. In that verse, one verse, he is a God merciful and he is a God abounding in steadfast love. We have a hard time in English translating the Hebrew word hesed from which we get the translation here, steadfast love. Some English translations just use the word mercy. Some say loving kindness. Some say covenant love. But the point is, there is no equivalent concept. It is the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the power of God, as well as the genuine love of God, all tied up into one. He owes you and I nothing. We do not add to God a thing. God wasn't lonely when he made man. God wasn't bored when he made man. God wasn't deficient when he made man. God wasn't distracted when he made man. God wasn't somehow asleep or experimenting with something when he made man. The reason God made man is because God has ordained man. In the wisdom of God, who is far wiser than me, God ordained that man would be created. And man rebelled against God, and the rest, as we know, is one big, colossal train wreck. So God, in his nature, is merciful. Thanks be to God. Can you imagine if God were capricious? You know, just willy-nilly does what he wants whenever he just sort of, I'm going to be good to them and not good to them, so forth. God's not capricious at all. That's the way men are. That's not the way God is. God is merciful. Thanks be to God. A second thing that we note here is that this is God's plan. Scripture says, according to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. It's, it's his plan. It, it's interesting when you study this that, that this plan is fraught with, if you will, problems. There's a weakness to this plan. And that weakness is if you put your, so to speak, your, your money on people, 
you find out that people let you down. We can say that about people in our lives and we've honored or respected or put on pedestals, so to speak, in our lives. And invariably, we have found them, as we get to know them, we've found them to be people with feet of clay. It turns out they're not as pure. It turns out they're not as right. It turns out they're not as wise. It turns out they're not as good. It turns out they have streaks of, and you could insert your favorite negative modifier right here. There's streaks of selfishness or unkindness or impatience or some sort of worldliness. Turns out the people whom we love and respect the most still are weak. And people that respect us, the more they get to know us, the suggestion is that they will find out that we are weak. There's an old adage even in preaching. Preachers shouldn't make friends in churches. The reason is because once you folks know how bad I am, you won't like me or you won't put up with me or you'll quit coming to church. That's the old wisdom, by the way. I'm, I'm of the reverse school. I like to have as many friends as possible. And the truth is you're going to find out things about me that you wish you didn't know. But now the monkey's on you, bro. You got to figure out how to live righteously with someone who's not Jesus Christ. Eureka. He's not Jesus Christ. We don't follow people because they're perfect, we don't love people because they're perfect. And the good news is, our God doesn't love people because they're perfect. It turns out he's got a plan to love imperfect people. Let me show you that in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 9. I invite you to turn there if you will. We won't be there long. But if you want some devotional reading today, just start in the 5th chapter of Deuteronomy and read through the ninth or 10th chapter. Just about 5 chapters. I promise you, you'll get a really, really, really precious picture of God. I don't know what you think about God today, but Deuteronomy 5 to 10 will probably clean up your mess. Read it. You'll remember the context here. Moses is about to send them off into the promised land. Moses, you'll recall, is the prophet of God who at the age of 80, at the age of 80, brings them out of the promised land, across the sea, into the wilderness, and into the edge of the promised land. They go in, they send spies, come back. They 10 vote, don't go. They convince the people not to go. They take a vote. And uh, those people who voted with the minority or with the majority report, which is to not go and follow God, the, the scripture says that God judged them and they were forced to wander in the wilderness. They walked around. They walked around in the desert for 40 years until they died. And that generation died. And so by the time you get to Deuteronomy, remember that was Exodus, now you get to Deuteronomy, guess what's happening? All those kids whose parents have now died and buried in the wilderness, all of them, all of those are now alive and they are about to go over into the promised land. And so Deuteronomy is 40 years after Exodus. And so he tells the story again. We told your parents this, now we're telling you this. So basically in Deuteronomy 5, he begins the Ten Commandments, and he begins to talk about, and he gives them, so we're in the middle of a pep talk here in Deuteronomy 9, and I want you to note the character of God here, the nature of God, as we read. Look at verse 1. Moses speaks to Israel. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to heaven, The first of those cities, of course, was Jericho. 
Archaeologists tell us that this, the walls of Jericho were probably 30 feet high and 6 feet thick. I'd call that a fortified city. And I would ask you, if you're, if you're an army of nobodies, I mean, there's not, a, there's not a trained warrior, right, in the bunch. Moses is walking around the wilderness and her parents are dying. And these folks who were six or eight or 10, 12, whatever, and now they're, now they're 40. But they're, not, they're not the crack troops. These aren't the shock troops of God. And we're going to go up against a, a city that has 30-foot walls, six feet thick. You got a plan for that one? I suspect you don't. I suspect you run up against a few walls in your life that are like that. You don't know what to do. And if you haven't yet, you will. But here's what God says. These cities are great and fortified up to heaven. They are a people great and tall. They are the sons of Anakim. Whom you know and whom you've heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Again, I'll stop here a moment. It turns out that the people who inhabit these great fortified cities with 30-foot high walls, turns out they're giants. Now, you take an average-sized man today. An average-sized man today is a lot bigger than the average-sized man three millennia ago, four millennia ago. People have gotten bigger. I think it's the steroids in chicken, but I'm not sure. But let's assume your average height and you run up against a guy who's a foot taller than you and he outweighs you 75 to 100 pounds. It turns out he's got friends, hundreds of friends, thousands of friends, just like him. What are you going to do? I'll tell you that if you're typical, if you're usual, if you're like their parents, you're going to vote no. They're giants over there. I'm not going. Fortified cities and big dudes, not going. But God's not putting up with that. Look what he says. Know therefore, verse 3, today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord. (laughs) You know, that ought to end it for us, right? Who's on your side? God. Okay. I just brought my, you know, my roommate. I just brought my buddy. Just, just brought my gun. Really? How's that going to go? Poorly. We just sang about God burning chariots of fire, just burning them down. How does God stop, stop armies? He can stop them any way he wants, including burning their chariots. Just burns them. Just torches them. So you bring your weaponry, you bring your, your friends They're going to destroy. He will destroy them quickly and subdue them, he said, before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say, he says in verse 4, in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And that's a lot, but let me tell you the quick of it. 
Why, why has God chosen to bless us? Why has God chosen to give us his son? Why has God chosen to care for us, to provide for us, to, to be the way God is toward us? Why has God done that? You might be tempted to believe that that is because you possess some beauty or skill or some potential or some merit or worse yet in your arrogance because you're good enough. The reason God has blessed you is because you are a good person. Well, you may be better than me. You may be better than anybody in this room. But you're still not good enough. Turns out God's people have never been good enough. God tells us plainly in Deuteronomy chapter 9 why he chose to bless Israel. And that is because I knew your father, your grandfather, and your great-grandfather. And I promised each one of them that I would do this. I'm keeping a promise. It turns out men make promises and break them. And God makes promises and keeps them. God made a promise to my ancestors and to your ancestors. And he promised that he would shepherd us. So he's going to send them into the promised land because that's what God promised he would do. So notice verse 6. We'll, we'll land this plane. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this land to possess because of your righteousness for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, that's Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were given, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I, Moses, went up on the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord was, uh, had made for you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I ate neither bread nor drank water. The Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. At the end of 40 days and nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves... A calf, a metal calf. You know, since we don't really pay attention to Egyptian deities, a golden calf is an Egyptian deity. They came out of Egypt 40 years before. Turns out their parents were rebellious by voting no against the spies, and they died in the wilderness. Now these are their children and their grandchildren and he tells them, you're just as stubborn as your parents, only different. You're stubborn, you're stubborn. You know, there are a lot of things that prove that we haven't changed much. COVID is one of them. It's not the only thing, but it's certainly one of them. There is no end to expert opinion. I don't know who's right. I don't know what to tell you. But at the end of the day, 
right or wrong. We're all pretty stubborn. And stubborn is not exactly a character trait that God admires. A lot of things bring out our darker sides. Pressure. Great knowledge. Become so smart. So wise in our own minds. I'm the guy that's going to be the savior. I'm the guy that's got all the right information. You know how it is. Stubborn. Stubborn. Arrogance. And, and, and what happens when people become arrogant? They steamroll people. They hurt people. They say stuff, do stuff. They judge privately and publicly. And why do they do that? Because they are not pure. Why do we do that? Because we are not pure. That's why. It's so easy. And it, if it's not COVID, it's a thousand other things we could talk about. But salvation is the loving work of God to sinners. He promises to be merciful. What do I need when I have proven myself to be stubborn? What do I need when I have proven myself to be arrogant? What do I need when I have proven myself to be rebellious? Well, from you, I need grace. And from God, I need mercy. I can live without your grace. But I can't live without his mercy. And neither can you, friend. And his strategy is that once you receive his mercy, you become changed. And then you begin to extend grace to others because you're changed by his mercy. So what does Jesus do for us? According to Peter, verse 3, according to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope. We are born again. What has God done for us? He's caused us to be born again. He has, he has purchased us. He has bought us. He has redeemed us. He has rescued us. I was a wandering pilgrim, and God reached down out of heaven and gave me a lifeline. Has he done that for you? I trust him. that's the case. Salvation is the loving work of God. Why would God do this? Because he loves us. Because he loves us. Because he loves us. It's not because of us. It's not because we loved him. He loved us. Thanks be to God. There's a second thing here quickly in verse 3. And that is that our hope is in the one who's been made alive. Notice what he says. We are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that though he was God, he laid aside his glory and came to earth and took upon himself the form of a man, that he submitted himself to the call of God and the wisdom of God and the holiness of God, and he lived a perfect and sinless life. And that in the fullness of time, God brought the judgment Upon that, that is mine, that is yours, upon him. That Jesus died not for his sins or crimes, but for my sins and my crimes and your sins and your crimes. And Jesus was punished by the only punishment that is appropriate for the level of criminality that exists in every one of us against the holiness of God. We are not holy 
and we deserve to die. But God has rescued us from that death by putting that criminality on his own son. His son dies in our place. But God, because he is wholly righteous, completely righteous, totally righteous, has now vindicated his son through the resurrection. We look at Christ not as another criminal justly punished, but rather as the one unjustly punished who took upon himself my sin. He bore my stripes. He bore my condemnation. Jesus is the one punished. But God has now vindicated him through the resurrection. The resurrection is the stamp of God. This one who was dead is now alive because he is worthy of life. He is deserving of life. And now because he sits at the right hand of the Father, he knows your name. He knows your circumstance. He gave himself for you so that you might have eternal life. You may say, well, I don't believe in the resurrection. Well, that's a problem. There are all kinds of implications for that if you don't believe in the resurrection. Let me just show you one. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, 12. One of them. This is the longest section in the Bible on the, on the resurrection, the teaching of the resurrection. This one paragraph, verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So you see you've got a fundamental problem. If there is no resurrection of the dead for anyone, there is no resurrection of the dead for everyone. And working backwards, if there's no resurrection of the dead for everyone, there's no resurrection of the dead for anyone including Jesus. So if, if I can't be raised from the dead, Jesus can't be raised from the dead. Continue. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. What does that mean? That means you are faithing in Jesus, believing in Jesus of no consequence to yourself, of no value to yourself. There's no benefit to believing in Jesus. Your faith is in vain. Let me say that another way. If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and that somehow that resurrection power is transferable to you to give you a living hope, the only other place you can go is hell. Your faith is in vain, which means you're left to God and his judgment. And God has ordained that his judgment upon you would be destruction. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. I've said this many times before. If you think that just believing in Jesus makes you a better person and that would be worth it even if the resurrection is not true. Just believing in Jesus makes you a better person. You know, you kind of order your life a certain way. It makes you a better person. You like eat people like to put up with you, hang out with you, whatever. Just because you're a moral person. But there is no promise of resurrection. The Bible says you are a fool. You are of all people to be most pitied. Because that is a fool's errand. To just clean up your life and not have some eternal reward. That's, that's, not, a, that's not a good trade. It's not even a wise trade. The Bible, Bible doesn't recommend you do that. Instead, the Bible says, put your trust in Christ, who, though dead, was raised from the dead, and by faith in him, now you have a living hope. Do you know, do you know why things are the way they are in the culture today? 
you can just track it's kind of an inverse relationship. The, the more irreligious the culture becomes, the more desperate the culture comes. The more irreligious, the more, the more uncommitted, if you will, the, the more the living hope dies, the more the confidence in Christ dies, the more disaffection we feel for Jesus as a culture, the higher the ratio of, of anger, of discouragement, depression, even violence. You know, the world doesn't like to hear us say that, but it, but it is true. As the church goes, so goes the culture. We want to be a church that takes seriously the gospel because we know that it is not merely our hope for eternity, though it certainly is. It's also our hope for the now. It is. We need strong churches. We need God-filled, God-empowered churches who love Jesus and talk about Jesus and cling to the resurrection. It's power. That's what we need. Our hope is in the one made alive. There's a third thing, and I close. And that is in 1 Peter 3, pardon me, 1 Peter 1, verse 4, we've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. In the Old Testament, the inheritance was the land. Just send them to the land. The land was the picture. It was the metaphor. But remember, it's not about the land, right? The land is just a picture of what's to come. It's like the temple, the Old Testament temple. The New Testament teaches that Jesus is the temple. It's like the sacrificial lamb, the, si- the system of sacrificial blood and goats and so forth. That, that's, that's not the full picture. That's just a pointer. That's just a picture of the picture. That's the picture that is to come. Because in the end, what is to come is Jesus. So all these Old Testament symbols and types point to the one who is to come. And it's all fulfilled in Jesus. So the land... The land, what what is the purpose of the land? The land is the place of rest. The land is the place of prosperity. The the land is the place of relationship with God. The land is all of these things. And of course, all of that is made possible in the New Testament, we understand, in Jesus. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our future. Jesus is our supply. Jesus is our prosperity. Jesus is all of this. Jesus is better than land. Jesus is better than houses. Jesus is better than gold, silver. Jesus is better than your job or your career. Jesus is better than your life. Jesus is better. I want to urge you today to consider your relationship to Christ and to recognize that in the end of it all, there is a new future. And see, this future is not perishable like the land or defiled like the land or fading like any earthly gift, but rather it is all of these things in eternity. I would ask you today, why are we here today to celebrate the Lord's Supper? Our deacons are going to go and prepare right now for our Lord's Supper. They're going to come back in a moment, and they're going to serve us a a little piece of bread and a little cup, and we might ask ourselves, what is this? Well, it's a symbol. It's kind of like the land in the Old Testament, kind of. Not the same, but kind of. It's a symbol of something that is yet future. We, We don't have the fullness of relationship with Christ yet. We're not in his company. We're not in the company of the saints of God in heaven. We're here. We're, we're running around with one another. And as wonderful as we are and as much fun as we are to hang out with each other and so forth, we still are not totally 
everything we wish people were. We find ourselves in the midst of sorrow or frustration or unkindness and so forth. And I would ask yourself, what does this bread and this cup have to do with any of that? Because it is a taste. It is a taste of what is finally to come. What is fully to come, but not yet. So we take this taste to remind us of what has happened as a foretaste of what is to come. As we take the Lord's Supper, look around this room, and I recognize that there are people here who are different from all walks of life, from all kinds of circumstances. That is exactly what's supposed to happen. We're all here that we might be one in the same Lord, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. This is our life. This is our future, the people of God. We are a peculiar people, a chosen race, God's people. God has set his affection upon us and loves us so, and he's given us his son that we might worship him. So we take the Lord's Supper today in obedience as well as in hope.